You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. The hope of heaven. Over the next three weeks, we'll be looking at that hope and we'll consider what happens to us when we die. The renewal of creation and how it is the hope of heaven affects our life today. This morning, what happens when we die? I find oftentimes when we think about this question, the first question that comes to mind is, how do I get to heaven? And it's an important question, but it is a question I think we are absolutely preoccupied with in America, at least around uh, religious circles. And as I've read the Bible, you would think that we ask that question so much that there ought to be a whole section somewhere in the Bible, right? You'd think that somewhere someone would have dealt with the question, how do you get to heaven? And I, I don't know, I've read the Bible a couple of times, and I've not ever noticed that particular section. How do you get to heaven? And the reason for that is not that it's not an important question. It's that there is a more important question, and that is the question of who. It is the question of who with which uh, the scriptures are preoccupied. The question of who is this one who opens to us the eternal gates of paradise? Heaven begins with a relationship, and that relationship begins today. Would you pull out the Bible that's uh, in the rack in front of you, or perhaps you brought one, and open up to our text this morning, which is Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand, and let's, as a congregation, together read God's Word out loud. Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. A familiar story of the... Criminals on the cross as Jesus is crucified. And when we're done reading this, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. It seems to me that uh, the difference between these two men is hope. They have a lot in common. Uh, They've both committed some crime or crimes. Uh, They're both guilty, both been caught, both been condemned, both... Uh, received sentence, and now both being punished, both about to die. Don't know if they know each other in cahoots or just meeting each other this strange way. But they have a lot in common. But there is one thing, one very noticeable thing that stands out to separate the two, and that is hope. One of these two men has hope. And if we ask ourselves a question, where does it come from? The only answer I can think of is the guy on the middle cross. 
The guy between the two of them. That's the who who gives the hope to one of these two men. Recently, I um, learned of a couple who've been dating for a while, a man and a woman, and uh, she has come to believe that Jesus is God reaching out to all people. And she has put her trust in Jesus Christ, her life in the hands of Jesus Christ. She's a believer. But she's dating a man who hasn't yet come to that point of faith in his own life. And this is beginning to trouble her. And the relationship is getting serious, and so she knows it's time to have the talk. Guys tend to hate that word, phrase, the talk. But this fellow is going to get it. And she's thinking, how is it that I can bring up the subject in a way that's honest, that's clear, and that's respectful? And this is how she decided to do it. She said to him, it seems to me that there is a difference between our lives, your and mine. And the difference, I think, is this. It's that I have hope for my life and that you don't have hope for your life. Now, I thought, well, I'm not really sure what she was trying to accomplish with that kind of response. But I got to give this guy a lot of credit for his honesty, because what he told her is, you know, you're right. I don't have hope for my life. And I would tell you that I think the very thing, perhaps, among others, that is attracting him to her is that he has noticed about her life. Kind of an intangible, elusive, but ever-present hope. It's drawing him in to relationship with her. If we were to ask the question, if he were to ask the question, where does that hope come from? I think we'd know our answer. It's the guy on the middle cross. That's where hope comes from. Now, all of the Gospels tell us as Jesus is crucified that he's not crucified alone, that there are criminals with him. And the the Gospels tell us, likewise, that these criminals have joined the jeering of the crowds who mock Jesus. Oh, if you're really a king, you know, so-and-so, and making fun of Jesus. And apparently the criminals you know, enter into this uh, as one final sport for them. But Luke alone, this what you just read, Luke kind of zooms in, double-click on, on the scene, and let's get a little bit more resolution and definition and actually allows us to hear one particular conversation that happens as Jesus and these men are dying. But I think it's late in the day because there's been a change We'll talk about that in a second, but let's first understand what's going through the mind of the first criminal. It seems a little caustic to be dying and to engage in this kind of uh, belittling, sarcastic abuse that he gets into, right? I mean, what, what does he have to gain? Well, think a little bit more about him. I mean, because, you know, he jumps right into, are you not the Savior? If you are, save us and save yourself. It's kind of mean. But we don't know a lot about this man. Uh, many times we think of these as the thieves on a cross, but we don't really know that they're thieves. The, the word that Luke uses is compound word of evildoer, and the criminal is a good uh, translation of that. He may have stolen something, but why? He may, on the other hand, be a, an insurrectionist uh, like Barabbas, uh, who is sort of a freedom fighter, chafing under Roman rule. 
We don't know really what's motivated him, but one might think that wherever he is is a result of his dreams, his hopes, his aspirations, his best attempt to live the fullest life on earth that he could possibly live. And yet what we do know about him is it hasn't gone well. Here he is in shame, in humiliation, and this is the end. There won't be another chapter after this for him. And he begins to experience what all of us experience when we're facing loss, disappointment, and that's anger. I think he might see himself as kind of the the world's last clear-eyed realist. Well, this is what will happen to you if you dare to dream in life. If you dare to think positive thoughts, it all is um, given the lie at the end of life and He probably looks over at this man in the middle and he says, here's one of these starry-eyed idealists. You know, take some pleasure in watching his pretensions debunked in the horror of death. I got to say, I thought as I began studying this passage that I would be relating to the second criminal the guy who says, remember me, Jesus, because I believe in Jesus. But the more I reflected on this passage, the more I had to admit that, no, I, I relate to the first criminal. Because here's, here's how, you know, I, I think about the things that have gone wrong in my life. I think about the disappointments of my life. I think about the struggles of my life, the ways in which I know I am falling so far short of God's best for me. And sometimes again and again and again. It's got a familiar pattern of brokenness or sin in my life. And I cry out exactly what this man is crying out. Are you not the Messiah? Save me from this. And I keep on. And my world doesn't change in an instant as I ask him to do. And this is the way for all of us, is it not? I mean... We always find that life doesn't quite go the way we plan. I don't know a marriage that's still working on plan A, you know. I know a number of single people that, are, that know they're on plan Z. Uh, a lot of us get the diagnosis that tells us, wow, this is a right angle in the trajectory of my life. Our careers take wild careening turns. Many of us, here's a stretch, find ourselves in a much deeper debt than we thought we would ever find ourselves in. And we say, God, if you're really God, why don't you do something about this? Bring glory to yourself and relief to me. Get me off this cross. Come on, let's do the Messiah thing. I relate to this guy. I don't know, maybe for him, as he goes down in dust, it's kind of the last empowering thing he can do to belittle somebody else. Victor Frankl says, you know, they can take away everything from us except one last thing, and that is our freedom to choose our attitude. And this guy has exercised his freedom to choose his attitude. I will be a cynic. And I can choose to be a cynic, and you can choose to be a cynic. We can, if that somehow helps us explain what has gone wrong in our lives, we can go there. But just realize what that means. What that is, is that decision, that subtle decision that we're making, is allowing our disappointments to redefine our faith. Do you see that? Rather than our faith to redefine our disappointments. The real thing for us becomes our disappointments. And it will interpret everything else. 
as opposed to being someone whose real thing is God and our faith in who he is, our understanding of his greatness and his glory and his beauty and allowing that reality to recharacterize all. Well, apparently something different is happening in the life of this second criminal uh, with all that he shares in common, including the jeering. Apparently other gospels lead us to believe he gets in on that teasing. But now late in the day, something has broken open in his soul. <laughs> Luke hardly gives us an explanation, but he really shows us what it looks like. And you ask, what does it look like? He says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I want to suggest to you that is a remarkable petition. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think it would be remarkable, even if they were Jesus and this criminal sitting in a synagogue together. I think it would be remarkable even if they were just walking along the dusty shores of the Sea of Galilee. But the fact that he makes this petition as he is dying and as Jesus is dying shows us something very profound. Right? You can almost hear the snort of the first criminal. <laughs> Here's that, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. Um, <clears throat> by my watch, in a few hours, if not a few minutes, all three of us are going to be dead. And exactly who is it that's going to be doing any remembering? And exactly who is it that's going to be remembered by someone? This story is coming to a fast close, brothers. There's no remembering from here on forward. And yet, this second thief has a hope that's breaking into his life that gives him the ability to say, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Where does this hope come from? The guy on the middle cross. He doesn't know him real well, but he's beginning to get a sense of who it is who hangs to die between these two criminals. If you were to ask him, maybe someday you'll get a chance, and, and say, tell me, what were you thinking at that moment? I think here's what he'd say. He'd say, well, first of all, my, it was serious blood loss, and uh, it could be forgiven uh, for bad theology, but uh, my head was dizzy and swimming, but I kept hearing but the ringing in my ears this taunting, save us and yourself, save us and yourself. Now, let me tell you some things that all of us knew. We all knew that God was going to send a king. We called him a Messiah or Hebrew or Greek. It was Christ. This king was going to come to Israel and restore things to make it the way it should be. Everything made right again. Everything made beautiful and good according to God's intention in Israel and through Israel. We knew that. But save us and yourself. I thought, you know, we hang here, we two criminals, uh, under the authority of Roman law. And the raw law was very clear. And we both broke it and we're both guilty. And I seriously began to think, is it even conceivable that this king, this Messiah, this Christ would someday come and actually release people like me, but people from justice? I don't think he would have mind justice. I think he would probably enforce justice. And so he would be saving us. 
from anything. But then he says, save yourself. And I begin to think about the man in the middle. Why would he need to be condemned? Why does he hang in debt? Because if there's anything that anybody knows, they also know that this particular man, be he the Christ or not, has committed no violation. He's broken no law. There's absolutely no reason for him to be here dying in exactly the same way that I am dying. Unless, perhaps, he's trying to take upon himself the punishment for the life that I have lived so poorly. I mean, I think it's not the power of justice that brings him to this place. It's the power of love. And then I began to think, if this is possible in my wildest dreams that he's dying for me, then there must be a me that survives this death. And if there is a me that survives this moment, then I hope against hope that there will be a him who survives as well because I want nothing more than to spend all eternity with him. And I don't think this man could see it so clearly. But if he had been in the 16th century, beholding the mystery of the incarnate Savior, he might have used the words that the Scots Confession used as uh, those reformers peered into the gospel These are their words. It behooved the Messiah and Redeemer to be true God and true man. Because he was able to undergo the punishment of our transgressions and to present himself in the presence of his father's judgment as in our stead for us. To suffer for our transgression and disobedience and by death to overcome him that was the author of death. Because the Godhead alone could not suffer death, God can't die, and neither could manhood overcome death, he's mere mortal, God joined both together in one person that the weakness of one, his humanity, should suffer and be subject to death, which we had deserved, and the infinite and invincible power of the other, that is, of the Godhead, should triumph and purchase for us life liberty, and perpetual victory. So we confess and most undoubtedly believe. This is the hope of heaven. This person, Jesus Christ. So we say, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And I don't think Jesus needs to say anything back, but I think to give an assurance as much to us as to this man who already is living with hope, he says, truly, I tell you, that's truly is amen. Truly, I tell you, this day, you will be with me in paradise. So I wonder about myself. I wonder, why do I so often seem to lack hope? I believe in Jesus. I believe in heaven. But that hope seems so rarely to bubble up to the surface and color my day and my attitude. I do believe in heaven, and I think that probably most of you believe in heaven. Fox News tells us 87% of Americans believe in heaven, and many of them are probably coming to church. So, But, you know, I've, I've come to believe recently that when I think about heaven, I, I unfortunately think about heaven like a business trip that I'm going on. 
right? I've gotten kind of lazy. This is a confession here. I have an extremely competent administrative assistant here, Nancy Schull, right? So when I'm going on a, I just went to a conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When I'm going on the conference, I don't even think about exactly where I'm going or how I'm getting there. I just, in the the dark of dawn, I'm on the Doug Fox uh, parking shuttle, and I open up my leather shoulder bag, and there's a file, a folder that's just sitting there. Pull open up the folder, there's a sheet of paper that tells me what airline I'm going on. And when when the airline's pulling into the terminal at the other end, I open up, there's another sheet of paper, what rental car I'm going to, and then what hotel that I'm going to. I didn't even think about it. I just have the folder there. And I begin to think, maybe that's my attitude towards heaven as well. Yeah, I believe it, but come on, I'm young. Not as young as I used to be, but I... I'm young, and that's, you know, someday when the, um, it's just time to depart this world, I guess there'll be a shoulder bag, and there'll be a folder in there with all the instructions that I need, and Jesus will have taken care of it, and all will be good. But I wonder if with that attitude, with that attitude I might not be missing out on the hope that is meant to work backwards from eternity into the present. Maybe the problem is I just don't want to think about death. I don't want to think about my death, right? We don't do that. In America, we, thanks to a lot of great medical technology, but other cultural facts, we have dismissed death from the home. We hold it at a distance from ourselves. Rarely do we walk through a cemetery uh, anymore, very frequently. Someone sent me a, a, a list of engravings on, on tombstones, and I've been hearing more from the congregation today. Uh, one says this, Stop and see as you pass by. So you are now. So once was I. As I am now, so you shall be. Prepare for death and follow me. Whoa. Uh, Harry Edsel Smith of Albany, New York, uh, it says on the headstone, born in 1903, died in 1942, and then it says, looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was on the way down. It was. There's a story. Uh, Apparently in Burlington, Vermont, we see this. She lived with her husband 50 years and died in the confident hope of a better life. That hurts. On the headstone of Sir John Strange, here lies an honest lawyer, and that is strange. Or another one, here lies Mary Smith, silent at last. How about this one? I'm still the boss. Is my favorite. Told you I was sick. If life is just 80 years or 90 years, and I know we have some very healthy UPCers who are going off the, hundred, the end of the 100 chart, if, if, it's, if it's only that long, and that's all there is to life, then where do we get our meaning and purpose? I mean, the name of the game has to do with just maximizing everything that happens in that space. I gotta go crazy with my health. I gotta maximize my health. I gotta maximize my wealth. I gotta maximize whatever titillation or stimulation I can get for more pleasure. I gotta maximize my happiness because that's what it's all about. And anything that sets me back or interferes, be it death or something much smaller than that, very quickly moves me into the camp of the first criminal. Disappointment. Having been denied. Having been rejected. And having been told that what I thought was going to be life is really not much more than a big zero with the edge rubbed off. But if the Bible is to be believed, then you and I are to discover the meaning of this life in perspective of the next. 
We are to see our 80 to 100 years, if we're given that many, in the context of all of eternity. The Bible says that our life is very short, seen that way. The psalmist in Psalm 39 says, Lord, let me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You made my days a few hand breaths. Over against this is the biblical insistence that we are made for eternity. And so the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says, So we do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight momentary affliction. Whatever you're going through right now, he said, this slight momentary affliction, however unslight it seems to you, in light of eternity must someday seem to be this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. The followers of Jesus Christ have seen their life refocused, redefined, recharacterized in ages gone past and even in other places around the world that share different cultural values than we do as Americans by eternity. Their mission, their vision, their values shift when they see their life in the context of of heaven and the hope of heaven. So in the fourth century, Jerome says this, let us learn those things on earth, the knowledge of which continues in heaven. Meditate on that this week. Let us learn those things on earth, the knowledge of which continues in heaven. Or in the 18th century, a young Jonathan Edwards, brilliant mind, great heart, wrote out a list of resolutions that he wanted to guide his life as he grew out of his 20s. And he says this, number five, I'll just read a few of them. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 18, resolved to live so at all times as I think is best in my devout frames. And when I think I have clearest notions of the things of the gospel, the good news, and another world. Finally, number 50, resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Coming back from that conference in Minnesota, I was on an airplane and I overheard a flight attendant, a conversation. And someone asked, how you doing? He said, good, with that sigh. Um, summer ends in two weeks and I have my vacation coming. And I thought, oh, I totally get it. Even though I'm coming off the end of my vacation. I thought, be, be honest. Is your mood not affected by how soon your next vacation is and, and by how long it is? I mean, there's a, there's a mathematical equation in my life. The closer that vacation is and the longer it's going to be, the greater uh, my, the, my mood is and my capacity to reframe the trials or traumas that I'm going through in the moment. Well, think about heaven. Think about heaven. If we were to draw a line or string a wire from one side of the sanctuary to the other this morning and that were to represent to us all of eternity, how long would the span of your life be on that wire? A foot? A few inches? 
just an infinitesimally small point on that line. You're going to live for the point or you're going to live for the whole for all of eternity. Because heaven is like a vacation that's coming so infinitely close when viewed that way. And it is so infinitely long. Would it not then have an infinite capacity to generate hope in our lives today? We could almost hear the words that Jesus utters to this man. Today, you will be with me in paradise. How can we have this hope? We get to know the guy on the middle cross. Heaven begins with a relationship. And that guy wants to begin a relationship with me and with you today and for all of eternity. I want to close by reading a, um, a letter from Lewis Carroll. And I read this in particular for the kids. This is, a, um, this is my favorite thing that Lewis Carroll wrote. And children, if you remember the name Lewis Carroll, his real name is Charles Dodgson, but he writes Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, these great stories. But uh, in published in one of his editions of Alice in Wonderland, the back is this letter that he writes to his audience, to kids whom he loves. And it's entitled this, An Easter Greeting to Every Child Who Loves Alice. And you may choose to listen with your eyes closed. Dear child, please to fancy, if you can, that you are reading a real letter from a real friend whom you have seen and whose voice you can seem to yourself to hear, wishing you, as I do now, with all my heart, a happy Easter. Do you know that delicious, dreamy feeling when one first wakes on a summer morning with the twitter of birds in the air and the fresh breeze coming in at the open window, when lying lazily with eyes half shut, one sees as in a dream green boughs waving or waters rippling in a golden light. Is it a pleasure very near to sadness, bringing tears to one's eyes like a beautiful picture or poem? And is not that a mother's gentle hand that undraws your curtains, and a mother's sweet voice that summons you to rise, to rise and forget in the bright sunlight the ugly dreams that frightened you so when all was dark, to rise and enjoy another happy day, first kneeling to thank that unseen friend who sends you the beautiful sun. Are these strange words from a writer of such tales as Alice? And is this a strange letter to find? In a book of nonsense, it may be so. Some perhaps may blame me for thus mixing together things grave and gay. Others may smile and think it odd that anyone should speak of solemn things at all, except in church and on a Sunday. But I think, nay, I am sure that some children will read this gently and lovingly and in the spirit in which I have written it. For I do not believe God means us thus to divide life into two halves, to wear a grave face on Sunday and to think it out of place to even so much as mention him on a weekday? Do you think he cares to see only kneeling figures and to hear only tones of prayer? And that he does not also love to see the lambs leaping in the sunlight and to hear the merry voices of the children as they roll among the hay? Surely their innocent laughter is as sweet in his ears as the grandest anthem that ever rolled up from the dim religious light of some solemn cathedrals. 
And if I have written anything to add to those stories of innocent and healthy amusement that are laid up in the books for the children I love so well, it is surely something I may hope to look back upon without shame and sorrow, as how much of life must then be recalled when my turn comes to walk through the valley of shadows. This Easter sun will rise on you, dear child, feeling your life in every limb and eager to rush out into the fresh morning air, and many an Easter day will come and go before it finds you feeble and gray-headed, creeping wearily out to bask once more in the sunlight. But it is good, even now, to think sometimes of that great morning when the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Surely, your gladness need not be the less for the thought that you will one day see a brighter dawn than this, when lovelier sights will meet your eyes than any waving trees or rippling waters, when angel hands shall undraw your curtains, and sweeter tones than ever loving mother breathed shall wake you to a new and glorious day, and when all the sadness and the sin that darken life on this little earth shall be forgotten like the dreams of a night that is past. Your affectionate friend, Lewis Carroll. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we do not behold you now with our eyes or hanging on a cross in such pain, death, but we behold you now with the eyes of faith. Because of the witness of those in the first century, we affirm that you are risen from the dead, that you have made good on your promise to go and prepare a place for us, that in your Father's house there are many rooms. But that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God had prepared for us who love you. Grant us the vision of heaven in this great event when God himself took upon himself our humanity to give us eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.